You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Well, hello, everybody. I am starting us off this week with something new for us, which is a listener question. Oh, nice. We got this question from listener Mike about cicadas, 17-year cicadas. Yeah. He wants to know, and I quote, how does a 17-year dormancy work? Like, how do they know it's been 17 years? Why 17 years at all? Presumably they aren't gestating like mammals do. And again, 17 years? What's sustaining them that long? Do they just conserve fuel really well? Is there a food reserve buried with them? Well, yeah, all, good all questions. really good questions, yeah, good Mike. Questions. I am going to give you a little, uh, a little rundown on the cicadas, and we'll learn I'm a so few excited. things. Sweet. So first of all, cicadas are what's known as true bugs, order Hemiptera, and there, in general, are two types of cicada species. There are annual cicadas. There are lots of this type of species in North America and elsewhere, and this is where some adults emerge each year to mate and lay eggs and die. Right. And then there are periodical cicadas. This is where all the members of this of one species in an area are on the same schedule, and they emerge in gigantic numbers altogether. So the 17-year cicadas are famous, but there are actually also 13-year cicadas. Mm-hmm. And different areas of the country have what are called different broods that are on different schedules. And the broods are noted by Roman numerals. So this year, 2021, Brood 10 will, will emerge. You might look at it and think it says Brood X, but that's actually a Roman numeral 10. Right. And this one occurs mostly in kind of the mid-Atlantic area, um, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Delaware, Ohio, Indiana. The next 17-year uh, cicada emergence after that will be in 2024, and that'll be Brood 13, which is like Wisconsin, Iowa, and Illinois. I'm cool. so excited. Very cool. Yeah, I mean, so we're in Minnesota. Those type of cicadas don't get up as far north as we are, but you know, Wisconsin nope. isn't that far away, so we could go visit them if we wanted to. Truly, uh, that is one thing about Wisconsin that I'm jealous of. Why can't they just come over to Minnesota? I would be so happy. <laughs> but we we do have annual cicadas, Rachel. So you that's know. true. Um, at any rate, there are three species of 17-year cicadas, and there are four species of 13-year cicadas. And they're all members of this, ge- this genus, which has the best name. It's called Magicicada. Oh, nice. Magical. I love it. It's magic. Ah. I mean, it probably seemed magical to people who didn't understand what was happening. Amazing. It is. Um, another amazing thing is that 17-year and 13-year periodical cicadas only occur in the eastern United States. There are a couple of Wait, other periodic... nowhere else? Nowhere else. Nowhere huh. else. Um, there are a couple of other periodical species elsewhere in the world, but they're on four and eight-year cycles. And annual cicadas occur all over the world, including in the same parts of the U.S. where the periodical cicadas live. 
Um, so another part of Mike's question was what the cicadas are doing for those 17 years while they're waiting to emerge. So to answer this question, I'm going to step back a little bit and talk about insect metamorphosis. Now, the type of metamorphosis that most of us learned about in elementary school is the, the butterfly type of metamorphosis. It's larva, pupa, adults are the stages, or in terms of a butterfly, caterpillar, chrysalis, and butterfly. So that's true for a bunch of groups of insects, butterflies and moths, flies, bees, uh, beetles. Cicadas and a bunch of other types of insects do what we call incomplete metamorphosis. Uh, and when they hatch up from the, an egg, they are what's known as a nymph. And the nymph, a lot of the time, looks kind of mm -hmm. like a mini adult instead of, you know, because like with a caterpillar, it looks really different from a butterfly. But a nymph usually doesn't look that different look from bizarre. an adult. Right. It's not as drastic a change. And the nymph goes through several cycles of growth and shedding its skin, and it gradually gets larger and more adult-like. So it's a much more um, gradual process than the complete metamorphosis that like a, a caterpillar goes through. And on its final molt, it becomes an adult and wings, if it's going to have wings, are only going to emerge in that final adult stage. So this is true, not only of true bugs like cicadas, but also grasshoppers, dragonflies, cockroaches. Um, anyway, so right. the, the female adult cicada, she lays her eggs on twigs and then the nymph will hatch out up on the twig and then it drops to the ground and burrows down into the soil. And then it lives underground uh, for the next 17 years in about the top two feet of the soil. And it just eats the juices uh, of the roots of trees and other plants. So it does not take its food supply with it, but its food supply is there in its habitat. And um, really, they're just kind of hanging out, living their best nymph life for 17 years. And they actually... So <laughs> Yeah, you've hit on the crux of the of the question there. That I, I think people just think that they are like sleeping down there or in stasis, they're just sleeping or whatever. Right. But it, they're just you know they're they're living down there like the majority of their life. They're just they're down there eating food. Yeah, having some green smoothies. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Yeah, chowing on roots. You know, I feel like we have this uh, sort of bias as as humans that the adult stage is the goal or kind of the, the main part right, of the life. And it's the goal in terms mm -hmm. of reproduction because only the adults can mate and reproduce. Sure, sure. But for a lot of insects, actually, the bulk of their life is spent as a larva or as a nymph. And yep. so it's just kind of a, it's a different way of looking at an insect lifestyle because the, the cicadas are spending 17 years of their life growing as a nymph and then only a few weeks as an adult before they die. Uh, at any rate, they actually count 17 years by the changes of temperature in the soil. So they can count like the winters, basically. Very cool. And when it gets to 17 and then the temperature of the soil gets up to the right temperature for June, approximately, up they come. And uh, you can get up to 1.4 million cicadas per acre, which is a lot of cicadas. Oh, that's so many. That's so many yeah. cicadas. Gosh, I, I didn't realize it was so dense. That's what my sources say. <laughs> I mean, an acre is about a, a football field. So you can picture 1.4 million per football field. That's a lot. Mm -hmm. 
whichever kind of football you like. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, it's still uh -huh. just so many to have mm -hmm. out there. I've seen pictures, you know, of them covering trees and sidewalks and things. And I think you picture that maybe oh, yeah, they've just, just sort of just a little bit less uh, amassed into that area where attracted to a light or something like that. But to think that there can be that many just sort of naturally that it, it's really just sort of I mean, it's mind blowing. I mean, and this doesn't even count like the annual cicadas, the dog day cicadas that come up. Oh, God. That's right. <laughs> So now we're getting to the big question, which is why 17 years? Yeah, that is and a good question. the answer is we don't know. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> so, of course, scientists have some hypotheses. Sure. Right. So one hypothesis is, um, I don't know if you noticed this, but 13 and 17 are. Well, I, I have a guess. Okay. What is it? Can I go for it? Uh, well, I kind of What think, do you think? Yeah, like I compare it to like oak trees and maple trees and things that will have what's called a mast mm. year where they will drop tons mm. of seeds and stuff all at once. And I would assume that by having these uh, massive birth years where there's so many, uh, you know, the predatory species can't possibly uh, eat all the cicadas that come up at once during those years. So I would think of it as a survival strategy to be able to, um, you know, produce more, than the predators can eat. I know we see that in plants. Um, I, it wouldn't surprise me if that's part of the strategy that they're employing here as well. Well, you're absolutely right, Kirk. And that is, scientists are pretty sure that's why they are periodical. Okay. But the question as to why 17 versus 15, for example. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if you noticed, but 13 and 17 are both prime numbers. Naturally. And... Yep. One theory is, one hypothesis is that um, predator population cycles tend to be more regular. And by um, going on this prime number cycle, they're going to kind of avoid syncing up with the predator population cycles. Okay, sure. If that makes any sense. So like if they sync up one year, then the next time they emerge, they're not going to be during a, a predator boom. Mm -hmm. Seems sensible. Another, I mean, yeah, that makes sense, but like, that's still, and then the whole fact that they can count, I'm not <laughs> over that. Well, they're all just down there with, uh, you know, they have whiteboards down there in the roots of the plants, and they're just a little dash, yep, little tally you marks. Check on each year. the community whiteboard. Yep, check marks. It Got works it. perfect. I mean, fine. that's another thing is they don't really know how they count. I told you it's whiteboards. Uh, this is uh, it's settled science, right? <laughs> So there's one other hypothesis, which is that um, this this uh, sort of uh, strategy that Kirk outlined about kind of having such a glut to to avoid yep. the predators killing yep. everybody off, that this was so beneficial um, that the mm -hmm. cycle length, also the prime number, developed to prevent periodical cicadas from mating with non-periodical cicadas. Oh, and, wow! Like, diluting their survival strategy yeah, it would mess up the uh the, huh. the cycles yeah if it's a genetic thing that's passed the, on so it's just so kind of gotten longer are, potentially evolutionary speaking yeah I, so they started out they they diverged from annual cicadas i forget how long ago it was like a few million years ago i think oh, a little while um, ago and 
So, you know, they emerge all at once and helps them survive predation. And it also helps makes finding a mate really easy. You know, <laughs> you have yeah. lots and lots of options. And I, I'm just going to end on this note. Occasionally there are, are a few periodical cicadas that get confused and they count wrong and they come up and they're just there all by themselves calling out for a mate. Aww. So sad. Lonely cicadas. You're screaming, anyone, anyone. All right, Mike, that's more than you maybe wanted to know about cicadas. I hope, hope this answers your questions. And when we come back from the break, it will be Kirk. Kirk here with a quick note. If you're enjoying the show, be sure to subscribe and leave a five-star review. It helps other lovers of The Strange find our show. You can also find and follow us on social media. Search for Strange by Nature Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or come visit us at strangebynaturepodcast.com. We'll see you there. Now, back to the show. So this week, I'm going to that amazing giver of the strange, the ocean. Yay! <laughs> uh, what I have for you, ah. uh, simply put, is the many-assed hydra worm. Now, let me be clear. Uh, this is not the actual name of this animal. Uh, there are two types of names you'll hear us using on this show. First up, we have scientific names, which is a binomial name, like Homo sapien for human or Canis familiaris for dog. Uh, these are the same globally, so scientists can understand what everyone around the world is studying uh, as they are using a shared naming system. So common names are just what everyday people call animals, and it can vary from country to country or even state to state. For example, depending on where you grow up in the US, you might call the little insects that light up at night uh, either a firefly or a lightning bug. Lightning bug. There you go. Uh, the common names are just a shared name uh, that someone made up at some point. Uh, some are very old, some are new, some, like the mini-assed hydra worm, are very, very new because I made them up uh, like half hour ago <laughs> uh, <clears throat> to avoid repeatedly saying the scientific name of this animal and also that, that is pretty because good. it's funny. <laughs> So to be clear, though, the animal I'm talking about is Ramacillus multicadata. Uh, that's my best guess on the pronunciation. Uh, Sounds pretty oh, good. thank you. Uh, I was tipped off to this animal by a great article on Gizmodo, of all places, so hat tip to them. Fans of Greek mythology or just fans of Marvel Comics uh, may know about the Hydra, uh, which is a mini-headed creature, mm -hmm. uh, but this animal is the opposite. It has many asses. So this critter gained uh, new attention. Ah, so it's multiple butts instead of multiple heads. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Many asses. Uh, this creature, ga creature gained uh, new attention this year after a paper was published in the Journal of Morphology, a team led by Dr. Maria uh, Teresa Aguado Molina, I believe that's her name, uh, described a creature, uh, the creature in a new level of detail. So these worms were first discovered in the late 19th century, but this was the first sort of highly detailed study of them. Uh, and if you're really dying to read the paper, it's called Integrative Anatomical Study of the Branched Annelid Ramacillus Multicadata. And it came out just this past April. So what's so interesting about these marine worms is that, that they have one head, okay. but their bodies branch 
Now we see branching in all kinds of structures in nature. I mean, we, we call it branching because trees, well, they, they branch, right? Uh, but we also see this same structure in leaves, veins, lungs, and even in uh, diverse non-living systems like watersheds and even lightning bolts. Right. So we see a lot of branching in nature. Uh, it's a natural function of the fractal nature of both living and non-living systems and structures. But while branching is common in living systems, it isn't too often where the entire animal is branched. Okay. Yeah, that's usually, that's pretty weird. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we have animals that have multiple limbs to them. Uh, that's not that unusual. Like an octopus. Exactly, but in this animal, the entire body, including all of the internal organs, actually branch. Oh. What? Yeah. I mean, this is, it's really, really weird. So there's one that a branching occurs. It's not like it's another arm. There's actually uh, all the internal organs, the, the entire digestive tract actually splits apart into each branch. That's crazy. Oh, it's, it's, it's real strange, but it gets a little stranger. So I said in this species, there's like the one head and then the body begins to branch. Well, oh boy, can it branch? Uh, the lead researcher, Aguado, uh, talking about the branches said, we're able to count more than 500 in one specimen. Oh my goodness. That's so many butts. But hold on. Uh, <laughs> she goes on to say, we think they can easily reach 1,000. What? So I really do think the common name, the mini-assed hydra worm, really needs to stick. 1,000 butts. I, I like it. 1,000 butts. Yeah. Now, I'll put it to the two of you. Can you think of a reason why this worm would be this way? Mm. Mm. My well, guess type of worm. is it lives in coral reefs. And okay. I don't know, I feel like there are a lot of branch things in coral reefs, so maybe it's a camouflage kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Just off the top of my head. And Rachel? I mean, my guess was Australia. Oh. And it's a, to be fair. <laughs> well, you are not off. Uh, this is found in the waters. Yes! Of Australia. You got it. I'm like, Australia has bizarre things. Why would it not have a many-assed hydra worm? <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> yes. Awesome. Now, it turns out uh, these, in fact, live inside marine sponges. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Spo <laughs> yeah, sponges are incredibly porous with all kinds of tiny passageways. So if you're growing and increasing your biomass, it makes sense to split and maximize the space you have to spread out. Now, I guess this makes sense, but I would think it'd be better to have more mouths in search of food rather than just a bunch of butts, but that's how they are. I could see where you're going with that, but technically you would be able to constantly be eating because there's multiple digestive tracts. Yeah, sure. There's some sense to that, sure. Uh, turns out, though, the mini-assed hydra worm, see, the name is catchy, right? Mm-hmm. I'm has, here for it. <laughs> well, it has another trick up its sleeve, although not really its sleeve. It's a trick up its, well, up its butt. Or butts, as it were. <laughs> when it's time to reproduce, uh, the tips of the branches convert from asses to reproductive organs 
called stolons. They grow eyes. Whoa. And brains. Of course they do. Right? And they fill with either sperm or eggs. They then detach and seek out stolons of the mm. opposite sex to mate with. And the process starts anew, forming a one-assed uh, one worm uh, that will soon begin to branch as it lives out its life in a sponge. So there you have it, the mini-assed hydroworm. I mean, I, I want to see it. <laughs> Absolutely. But I don't want to. I want to. Well, get out there yeah. and uh, start studying uh, sponges, and you too can see the mini-assed hydroworm. That is really fun. <laughs> that is a great name. We should definitely make it a thing. I'm here for it. Okay, well, after the break, we have Rachel. Alrighty. So this week, my topic was something that was also suggested to me by one of our listeners, cool. Brett Sieber. Oh, boy. Kirk, I know you know what this is. I do. I do um, indeed. Mainly because... <laughs> he sent it to both of us. It was mm -hmm. quite, quite a... Uh... I'm going for it. Yeah, quite a So it, it. it's something that all humans have. A majority of mammals have this. Uh, this week, I'm talking about the anus. So there it's really it fortuitous that, Kirk, you talked about the many-ass hydra worm <laughs> right before this. There you go. See, the name is catching on. Many-ass hydra worm. Tell your friends. It's the butt episode. Yep, we got the butt episode going on. I did not Apparently get the memo. <laughs> um, so, a a scientifically speaking, uh, it is an opening on the opposite end of the digestive tract. Uh, its job is to control the uh, expulsion of species. or <laughs> Expulsion of species? Of species. Oh, boy. That's pretty great. Yeah. Nah. <laughs> Its job is to expel feces or poop right. after the body is done digesting uh, what it can and ejecting that waste out of the body. Okay. Um, by the way, on a side note, I hope, Brett, I hope you appreciate this because my search history is so screwed. <laughs> um, did you just type asses into the search bar? Uh, oh, boy. I did. Uh, oh, so generally fun. speaking... <laughs> Anytime, truly. Uh, generally speaking, what gets expelled is things like bone or lignin or cellulose, as well as any excess. Wait, bone? Right. What What are you eating, Rachel? <laughs> You're expelling bones. I don't tend to eat a lot of bone either. Okay. Um, but like or uh, Victoria talked about hyenas. Uh, hyenas, it's mostly bone dust. All so right, fair enough, fair enough. Example. Uh, as well as like excess or dead gut bacteria that help digest all that stuff. Yeah, right, right. Um, birds, amphibians, reptiles, and monotremes like the platypus actually have cloacas, which is an opening for all waste for copulation as well as any egg laying that happens or reproduction. Multi-purpose. Yeah. <laughs> Um, what makes this really interesting and why I'm doing this 
is just how this has evolved, uh, this particular opening. It's completely fascinating. Um, obviously, a lot of scientists don't like to talk about it. Uh, it's embarrassing, <gasps> and oh no one wants to talk about it. You could say the word butt, but as soon as you say anus, everyone's just... Suddenly, everyone's a Victorian. We're out of the conversation. Right. But what's interesting... We are not afraid of butts here on this show. We are not afraid of it. Uh, but what's interesting is it has evolved independently in different animals at, at least a half dozen times. Like, really? independently. Wow. And some animals <laughs> actually have lost it and then later on <laughs> regained that opening. Okay. Which is crazy to wow. think about. So, Rachel, I'm now thinking back to to my episode about the face oh, mites. Oh, yeah. And how they didn't have an anus. Yeah. Which was blowing my mind, if you recall. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, so I did do face remember mites that lose their thing. anus? <laughs> what a good question. <laughs> Potentially. Did they once have an anus and now no longer have an anus? Maybe. Who knows? I certainly don't. Um, Into your face pores, obviously. Gross. Um, so it could have evolved 550 million years ago. Uh, there's also some evidence that it, the anus evolved 700 million years ago. Uh, and that evidence is based on, I believe, a... What is it? It is a, I think it's a cucumber, a sea cucumber. Oh boy, am I glad you specified sea cucumber and not a you know yeah. plant cucumber. That'd um, be real strange. The other fun thing is that some animals have a transient a- anus. A tra- it moves. Transient? Uh, what? <laughs> uh-huh. Uh, okay. How does that work? Yeah. How does that work, Rachel? So, tra- the as far as I could tell, a transient anus is where the opening happens uh, and right. eventually closes and just opens and closes in different spots wherever, I guess, that particular animal needs it. So it's not expelling waste every day. Oh, wow. So weird, weird times. That is something that happens generally in the ocean, I will say. Uh, There are two general hypotheses that we have uh, for how the anus evolved. Uh, The first is that the anus in the mouth started as one opening and elongated, uh, creating a somewhat of a tube, uh, which brings to mind a friend of mine, Liv, likes to say that humans are meat donuts and it makes me think of that. Uh, eventually, this tube caved in at the center and split into two different tubes, uh, eventually like reconnecting and creating that gut in the middle. Um, huh, okay. Some issues with this is that the genes for the mouth and for the anus are not expressed the same. Uh, they're actually two different expressions and two different genes, um, okay. which poses a problem for this particular hypothesis. Right. Just a little bit. Uh Another hypothesis that scientists have is that the mouth develops on its own uh, and then the food waste has 
nowhere to go. It eventually it just builds up and builds up and builds up. And so it punches through the body wall to create an opening on its own. Oh, that is that is not okay. Hmm. Well, no, it isn't. Go ahead, Victoria. But there are animals today that don't have an anus like jellyfish. They just, you know, they have a mouth and then they send the waste out of their mouth, right? Right. So just like one day a jellyfish was sick of doing that and the and the waste went through the other end or something. Ex- yeah. Not a jellyfish, but whatever animal. Right. Yeah, but see, this doesn't, this isn't really satisfying for me uh, because it sounds like more like Lamarckism than evolution. You know, mm-hmm. the idea that um, you can acquire traits over your life that, that you then pass on to your young doesn't really work that way. Like the classic idea of like a bodybuilder who lifts weights a whole bunch will end up having children that are really strong. Right. Like you can't pass that on in your genes. Uh, so if an animal ended up getting like a tear in its side that allowed the feces to leave, that's not going to somehow get into its genes and allow it to, like its children aren't going to then have that hole just because it ripped a hole in its side. But that's not how evolution works. So... I'm a little thrown off trying to figure out how that would uh, end up into mm-hmm. the genes and get passed on. You know what I mean? Although I suppose those species who have, like, say, a little bit thinner spot in the cell wall where food could get out are more likely to all of a sudden be able to expel that fecal material, and then they are more likely to survive and be able to pass on the genes for that thinner cell wall. So that that part, I guess, kind of makes sense. And that's generally where that kind of goes, because this actually has been observed in a polyclad flatworm uh, that has multiple anuses. Uh, It looks like little brown, black (laughs) freckles at the back of its body. um, And it's just where excrement exits that particular worm. So they have really thin cell walls that allow it to punch through. Um, okay. and I, I think that's where that particular one go, like where that particular hypothesis goes is that it's a, it leads to a really thin cell wall that it can then punch through. Gotcha. Um, but you bring up some really good points on some of the issues it, with like it. being an explosion. Exactly. So it leads to an end and then eventually it builds up enough that it goes. Ouch. That sounds yeah. painful. But that's what I have for you both today. Uh, anus. The evolution. Uh, amazing. Simply stunning. Thanks. So a lot of the information that I got in the article that Brett sent me was from The Atlantic. Uh, it came out somewhat recently as we we're recording this, and it was really interesting. I did go forward, and as I mentioned with my search history, and and research some more with other sources, but this was the one that I ended up starting off of, and it's called The Body's Most Embarrassing Organ is an Evolutionary Marvel, and yet we have very little idea where anuses come from by uh, Catherine J. Wu. It's really fascinating read and has a lovely picture of a cat butt right on the front. Well, that's what I have for you today. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Bye-bye. 
Thanks everyone for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of the strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.